Welcome to the Running Explained podcast. I'm Elizabeth, a marathoner, running coach, and answer seeker. When I became a new runner at the age of 29, I had so many questions, but it felt like I was on my own to figure out all of the answers. So now I'm here to answer all your running questions to help make you a better, smarter, faster runner. There's no question too simple and no topic too complex. So let's get started. My guest this week is Dr. Adrian Chavez. Dr. Chavez is a nutrition professional. He has a PhD in nutrition. He also has a master's in exercise scientist. And ah, you can see where the intersection comes into play. This episode is a little bit different because we're not specifically talking about running in it. I mean, yes, the things we talk about will apply to endurance athletes, but this is not an episode about running nutrition. My conversation today with Dr. Chavez is about what he calls himself as an anti-biohacker. We're talking about biohacking and why he believes and his mission is to be an anti-biohacker and what, and it's a discussion about, I mean, it is nutrition focused, um, but kind of all the things, the marketing around certain ways that we've been taught about certain things and it's just a really good conversation. So I hope you enjoy. Dr. Adrian Chavez, welcome to the show. I'm excited to have you here. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. So before we get started in talking about biohacking, go ahead and tell us about yourself. Who are you? Uh, so I am. Uh, I do a lot of things right now. I currently wear a lot of hats, but I operate a uh, a business in nutrition and health promotion. So I have a PhD in nutrition and health promotion. I got that from Arizona State University in 2015. Uh, after that, I went into academia for a little bit, but just saw some opportunities outside of academia, online with social media and digital marketing and, and being able to work with a larger you know population of people or impact a larger population of people. So I've been doing that uh, for about six years now. Um, been working with groups and working one-on-one and just seen a lot of different cases and worked with a lot of different populations of individuals. During my PhD, I did uh, research teaching classes, nutrition classes for low-income populations. So I was in community centers teaching mostly Hispanic, mostly non-English speaking uh, individuals, you know, nutrition classes. We were taking them through exercise, like training programs and doing like a disease prevention program. So that's always been my area of expertise and area of work is nutrition, disease prevention. Um, but when I got online, uh, I realized that there was just a complete, uh, just, there's just so much misinformation, uh, in the online space. So I got online, you know, trying to educate, talking about different topics and, uh, talking about science and talking like mainly just focusing on, you know, different scientific topics. And then I realized very quickly, you know, people would come to me and reach out to me with all of this different confusion. And I would have people on my post saying, oh, well, so-and-so said this. Um, So I had to, I realized I had to start shifting the message a little bit to start helping people to understand why a lot of this stuff is misinformation. A lot of this is coming from people who often don't have backgrounds in nutrition, who often have never even worked with a human being. Um, they're just really good marketers. They're really good at using uh, very compelling language to get you to believe it, to get you um, a little bit afraid so that you pay attention to it. And um, so that's something that I've spent the last couple of years just trying to highlight more and help people to understand because in the nutrition space online, there's just, I mean, it's 95% 
just people giving their opinion and then there's a few people out there really trying to do a good job and I'm sure the same is the same is the case in in your field as well but uh, you know nutrition people seem to be so confused and before uh, before I would I would talk about this stuff on my platform um, I would work with people in the first couple of sessions would be like talking to them about why all of these things are untrue like why you can eat before noon and and it's not going to or like you can eat after six and it's not going to cause you to store fat or you don't have to intermittent fast or you don't have to cut carbs and I would spend so much time with people just breaking down these simple completely wrong myths that people get exposed to over and over again on the most popular platforms which is the unfortunate part of it because it's the it's the news it's the media it's the the 1 million plus accounts on social media, the, the really massive accounts that really tend to spread a lot of this information. And it's because attention is is the currency uh, with media. Attention is a currency. And if you're trying to gain as much of that currency as possible, you're going to do sensationalist stuff in order to get the attention. That's how I mean, that's how the marketing works with that, unfortunately. And I always say, and this is, if anybody's listened to the show before, you'll understand this is the reason that you're here is like, oh, okay, some of the stuff he's saying, I think I've, I've heard before. We talk a little about, you know, general wellness and not in like the catchword phrase, but just be like, are you taking care of your basic health? And yes, we do at, on this podcast, you know, we're runners and we want to run well, we want to run fast, but if you're not taking care of your basic health, if you're not eating enough, period, if you're not sleeping enough period, you know, the rest of it isn't really going to matter. And I love what you're saying about this, you know, the, the fear, kind of fear tactics and the clicks and the, the content and the, you know, people going viral on this stuff, because we're talking today about biohacking. You call yourself an anti biohacker. And I think that when we talk about things that are biohacks, um, first we'll define what it is and it's a, a kind of a broad category of things but the idea that you can just do this one simple trick to solve all your problems has kind of been around since the beginning of just humanity right we're always looking for that shortcut we're always looking for the simple way yeah yeah and and we're always um things that sound interesting we're curious about so uh when you hear biohack you're like wow what is it what does that mean that sounds very interesting and normally when we think about something being hacked that's that's not a good thing necessarily like we you don't want your biology to get hacked for example like uh, i think that that's the thing that gets to me is like this it's a marketing term that doesn't really mean anything and it's used it's been used historically to to sell various different types of things that don't have any evidence behind them so it's not it's not a healthy habit it's a biohack because it's a biohack because it's not doesn't have any science behind it really or maybe like some some crazy theory behind it like for example the very first biohacking came from i'm not sure if you're aware of this like his history but biohacking that term was like coined by dave asprey who started like bulletproof coffee who basically which com- is butter in coffee yeah. that's his whole thing it was he- putting butter in coffee <laughs> He convinced people that putting butter in coffee was going to accelerate fat burn, like it was going to improve cognitive function. And this is just completely made up, completely made up. 
And it, it, the first time I came across this, I was at an event and they, there was a bulletproof like team there like giving out samples of buttery coffee. And I was like, why are y'all putting butter in coffee? It, this is like right after I finished my PhD and they were like, oh, it improves cognitive function and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, hold like that. That was the point in time when I got online and realized what was going on online. Like, I, cause I, I didn't use instant, like when, when you're doing a PhD, you're doing research. Like I wasn't on Instagram, wasn't on social media, wasn't listening to podcasts. I wasn't doing any of that. I was, you're just reading tons of papers, <laughs> you know, every single week, you don't have time for that other stuff. And that's what like caused me to recognize like some of the misinformation. I looked up the Bulletproof Coffee and I'm like, man, this guy's just like making a lot of money in reaching a lot of people telling them that butter is going to accelerate fat loss. And it, it progressed from there to where biohacks started, you know, people started to call everything a biohack because they realized like that term is really attractive. Um, it, it, marketing terms, a lot of times, a lot of these things, these, they get really uh, popular, like inflammation right now. You hear inflammation all the time. It's just a term that someone used. They realized how popular it was, how, how attention grabbing it was. And then a lot of people use it completely in a misleading way in order to to get that attention. So the biohacking thing, I mean, right now, um, the number of things that, that would be considered, you know, the blue light blockers all day. Uh, you know, there's there's so many different little um, people were using like grounding pads at one point where they were sleeping with like buying a five hundred dollar pad to put under their bed. Um, for like grounding purposes that they thought were, were going to reduce inflammation, like all of these different things are what I would consider biohacks. And the reality is that the vast majority of people, if we look, look at the statistics in the United States, less than 10% are consistently aerobically active, less than 10% are consistently lifting weights, um, less than, you know, the majority are getting the right amount of sleep. People are watching five hours of television. <laughs> they're they're um, sedentary the vast majority of the day. Fruit and vegetable consumption is extremely low, under one serving per day on average in the United States. Processed food is sixty percent of the total diet. Like these are the things that that matter that we really need to focus on changing. Um, and and these are the things that get lost in the discussion when biohacking becomes a central like uh, you know conversation when people are talking about cold plunges and saunas and there's for some of these things there may be benefits in certain circumstances like for example if you're running a marathon and you're trying to go run the next day like a cold, cold exposure is probably necessary to get some of that inflammation down to recover that quickly but if you're just an average person um, you know living a life you run a couple miles a, a few times a week you don't need to be, you don't need a $1,500 cold plunge to put in your backyard to be healthy. Like you, 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 you can be perfectly fine without that. And the health benefits of that are, they're overstated. Like right now when people are promoting uh, cold plunges from a health standpoint, like all of those claims are not really supported by any data. There's not any evidence to support the value of cold plunges. That's just another right now, another biohack. Another one that was really popular that kind of faded out that I think is a good example, CBD. Like CBD was the solution to everything a couple of years ago. And that just disappeared. And I, not completely, there's still a little bit of that, but like it was, it was everywhere. A couple of years later, 
it's almost nowhere. And this is just this kind of what happens with some of these biohacks is you people try it. They spend their hundred dollars a month on CBD. At first, they want it to work, so they believe it works. <laughs> and then over time, they're like, I don't know if this hundred dollars a month is really worth it. And then that that fades away and then collagen comes into the scene or whatever, whatever's next. And there's some value to collagen. I just did or I'm, I'm doing a podcast on that soon. Um, but we we also like we just have to understand that there's value in some of these things, but we have to get the important pieces in place first. If you're not sleeping seven hours per day and not getting pretty quality sleep like that needs to be the focus. If you're not hydrated well enough, that needs to be the focus. And most people, because I've I've worked with over a thousand people at this point, um, most people aren't doing those things. (laughs) And, And then they're worried about they're thinking about these other things. They're like, do I need a greens powder? Do I need to do this? Do I need to do that? And they're not doing the important things. <laughs> and and that's uh, that experience, I think, is a part that has shifted my message as well. Is like I've just worked with so many people at this point that I've realized, like, oh, wow. People are really confused in chasing after um, every little potential hack or supplement or, or gimmick and and they're just missing the important stuff like if we just get consistent with aerobic exercise a couple times a week lifting weights a couple times a week focusing on sleep uh you know moving throughout the day and not being sedentary all day as much as we possibly can you know these 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 important factors that have mounds of data to demonstrate their health benefits uh, if we focus on those things then that that's going to take up most of our bandwidth for most of us, like just really getting consistent with those things and not having to do all this other stuff. If you like those, that other stuff and it's convenient for you and it's accessible, great. But you like the, a lot of people are feeling like they have to go do the cold plunge and they have to now do the sauna and they have to now get the Theragun and they have to do this and that. And um, those things oftentimes just overcomplicate a lifestyle and make it unsustainable and at the end of the day we have to we have to do this forever <laughs> like if you're or like you know if, you, if your goal is to run forever like you have to do it in a way that's going to be sustainable for you and with your nutrition it has to be sustainable because your body doesn't just go away one day <laughs> well, it does but that's at that point where it's not something we have to worry about as much anymore i love your point about a lot of these things and it is a spectrum like there are practices suggestions recommendations that may hold some benefits for a certain segment of the population in certain circumstances like we're not denying that we're not saying that like every quote-unquote fad biohack you hear is complete bullshit (laughs) right for some people cryotherapy in certain circumstances in a certain dose might actually be helpful for them but then there's a there are some of these things, and we'll, I want to talk specifically more about some of the nutritional uh, nutritional fads, because I know that's your wheelhouse, and I know it's where a lot of um, people get really kind of confused on this, that don't have any evidence behind them or have extremely limited kind of sketchy evidence behind them. And as somebody who, and I've talked about this on previous podcasts, you know, back back in the mid-teens, you know, like seven years ago, um, 
you know, I was really all in on keto. Like I thought mm -hmm. it was the next big thing. I thought that I discovered, and I think this is how a lot of people feel. I discovered something that nobody else was talking about. And it made me feel like I was kind of in this exclusive club of like, Ooh, I know this, but nobody else does. And never mind the fact that, you know, the evidence wasn't really supporting it, but the stuff that I was reading says that it was and mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. I feel that's how a lot of misinformation is spread and the do your own research, quote unquote, people. Um, but then it is this very seductive place to be in when you think I, I'm doing something, I'm discovering something that the, even the smartest people in the world haven't figured out yet. Like, I think we have to acknowledge the emotional draw to how people, that makes people feel good. Yeah. Yeah. But you also, I mean, anytime you get in that situation, you have to, you have to be humble and realize like, or, or just really think like, is this true? Like, is this really something that the smartest people in the world haven't figured out? Because you're saying seven years ago, I, I finished, I started my PhD in 2011, finished in 2015. I, I was reading tons of research on ketogenic diets. Like, like I read hundreds of papers on ketogenic diets before it got that popular in the scientific community. It was well, well understood, well established. We all talked about it. Like in the scientific community. The the problem is that a lot of these scientists aren't, they don't have the time to communicate with the public and they just, they, they're not good at, at speaking in, in a, a way that the average person can understand because they're only communicating with other scientists and other PhDs most of the time. But the reality is like, in terms of these things, like that is a draw. That's part of like the emotional draw with certain things, but it, it uh, you're, you're never just going to be in front of like all of the smartest people in the world. There's always going to be, you know, people have learned about it and understood it. And if it seems like, oh, well, I'm on the cutting edge or, and this is something that the smartest people don't know, it's always good to check the other, check the other side in those cases. And really, because because science doesn't change like that, like uh the studies on ketogenic diets have been published for decades now, you know, and, and so the, when something pops up very quickly like that, it's not that the science just completely changed and, and made this, made this something that scientists are now aware of, or some small group of people are now aware of. It's someone figured out a really good marketing angle for this specific thing. So with the ketogenic diet, um, they basically just turned the Atkins diet into a new way of branding it. So, and, and it works because if you avoid all of a certain macronutrient group, you're going to most likely experience improvements and uh, you're going to lose weight. And you're also, so you're going to have some positive metabolic improvements as well because you're forcing your body to metabolize fat. So you're forcing a little bit more of those metabolic activities to, to upregulate themselves. So there is some, you know, some benefit to, to those type of extreme approaches, but they're just not, they're, they're never, they pop up and they go away. <laughs> and uh, th those fads have been going on since the sixties. Um, they're going to keep going on. Um, but at this point we have a really good foundation of knowledge to say, okay, this is generally what people need to be eating there are exceptions to everything 
there are cases where some people do better on low carb. There's cases where some people might need to avoid gluten. But generally speaking, we have a pretty good evidence base to say, okay, eat a lot of plants, you know, eat the right amount of calories, eat plenty of protein, especially for recovery. And if you're an athlete and those type of things, fuel with plenty of carbohydrates if you're running a lot. Um, and you can go keto, but there's just, there's no evidence that it's like, this is what you have to do, uh, which is a beautiful thing. I think some people want to be told what to do, but I think it's nice to know that there's a wide variety of diets that people can thrive off of. That's one of the things that has, uh, oh, that, that my eyes have been open to more out, being outside of like the research environment. You In research, you know, you're looking at very specific diets and things like that, and you don't really see the vast majority of different responses that people have where when you're working with so many people, I've met people who are completely carnivore and they feel great off of it and people who are completely vegan and they feel great off of it. And that's pretty amazing to me that the human body can, and I know people that eat nothing but McDonald's and they feel pretty good. You know, that that's incredible that the, the human body can just like adapt to so many different approaches. But there, um, I think the important thing is really understanding, okay, these are the important foundational needs these are principles from a diet perspective that are important but and then you know having flexibility from there to say you know do whatever works according to your own preferences your own needs your own um you know what you have access to your cultural you know traditions and things like that because these things all need to be taken into account if you're going to be eating this way forever As a running coach, I am often asked about supplements. Should I take this supplement? Should I take that supplement? And my answer is always, I'm not a dietitian. But my second answer is, before you start taking any supplements, you need to go get your blood work done to understand if that supplement is even appropriate for you. Because you can take supplements and not need them. And in some cases, like if you listen to the episode on iron for runners, taking a supplement that you don't need can actually be dangerous. Yes, it is possible to take too much of certain things and actually end up in not a really great place. Enter Inside Tracker. Before you start popping that iron supplement, do you actually know if your iron is low? It might be too high. Yes, it is a thing. With Inside Tracker, you can analyze your blood, DNA, and fitness tracking data to identify where you're optimized and where you're not. And now for a limited time, get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store by visiting insidetracker.com forward slash running explained. That's 20% off the entire store, insidetracker.com forward slash running explained. Something I get a lot of questions about, or I guess the questions are asked to me in this context about various habits, biohacks, shortcuts, you know, recommendations, is that for people who are acutely aware that they're not meeting their foundational needs in a, any in a category, right? I know I cannot get enough sleep, or I know that my nutritional needs are inadequate. Like they are, they are recognizing that there is a shortfall, and their question is about won't this insert biohack here at least help me close the gap? And I feel like that's a legitimate question because these people are truly struggling. So um, in those cases, it could, it could, you know? So for example, um, someone who just like, if you have a child who ha will not eat certain types of foods using 
vitamin supplements to plug those gaps using maybe like a greens powder or some type of, you know, fruit and vegetable blend powder that they enjoy to fill those gaps to provide some of those micronutrients. That's definitely, you know, that, that, that can go on a case by case basis. That's the challenge with, and you know, this, like this is a challenge with communicating with large groups of people is, um, there's always exceptions to everything in an individual setting. Um, but when we talk, the reason that I discourage some of this stuff when speaking to a larger group is because there's so many, if you're online and you're looking up Google search for anything related to health, fitness, running, anything, weightlifting, you are going to get bombarded with nonsense for the most part. Like you're most likely going to get ads for stuff you don't need. You're going to get infer you're going to get um, suggested posts of things that are misinformation oftentimes and that you have to really, you know, protect yourself against as best as you can. And that's the challenge when you're communicating with a large audience, I try to make people aware of that because that's most of what they see. And it's, it's not that I don't think that sauna is useful sometimes. It's just that, um, we need to really focus on where the main benefits can come from. And then in those specific cases, you have to learn how to make decisions, you know, on your own about, okay, you know, this is a scenario or, you know, with working with someone and they help you kind of navigate some of that. But, um, you know, there are cases where certain supplements and things like that are, um, helpful, necessary. Um, but, but the challenge is that you have to get, you have to understand the pros and cons of everything that you're doing. And when we're presented things, oftentimes we're given the pros and never the cons and the pros are exaggerated. <laughs> so we're getting like an exaggerated pros list, like with everything, vegan diets, people are going to tell you like game changers documentary. People say that it's, you know, the best thing ever for performance, blah, blah, blah. And then you hear people on the other side saying the same thing about carnivore and nobody talks about the vegans who go vegan and they have B12 deficiency and or, or other deficiencies, zinc, and they start losing iron, they start losing their hair and having other health issues, or on the other side, the carnivore individual who develops like inflammatory bowel disease or something like that over a year, these these are very common, like these happen, I, I meet these people all the time, um, and, and we don't hear those sides of it, and it's really important that with the information, you know, in terms of nutrition, um, you know, sometimes these things are valuable, but it's, it's making sure that you're making that decision with the right information and not because it was promoted to you in a very, um, misleading way. Something I find interesting about those, um, types of communities, um, the carnivore community, the vegan community, whatever the, the, and there are a bunch of them, people who are adherents to this, that, or the other is that, um, so often if a member of the community is struggling with issues that could be related to practicing the thing, they're often told that they're just not doing it correctly or they need to be more patient or they just need to like keep going um, instead of acknowledging, like you said, the cons or the, the you know, kind of obvious issues that some people might face. And I saw this all the time when I was in the low carb space, people were like really struggling, especially in performance oriented, low carb spaces for endurance athletes. And people would just be really struggling. And they were told, 
to put some butter in their coffee yeah, or to just like up their fat. electrolytes or to just keep going, right? Like that, oh, you're just not doing it correctly. It's not It's not the thing, it's it's you, you're the Your problem. Your body hasn't adapted yet or you have hidden seed oils. <laughs> like I, I was in, I'm in a couple low carb groups and I see this stuff um, and it's, it's always blaming the person rather than, but, but, and, and this is the issue is when you see that, that's a clear indication that this isn't about truth. This is about a belief system. Like if it was about truth, there would be the people who would be there would be more inquisitive about what's going on, but they're there to prop up a belief system, not necessarily to understand the truth behind, you know, the, what might actually be happening. Uh, yeah, I'm in a, I'm in a low carb group and it's, um, it's some of the most disturbing stuff I've ever seen. Like the, the responses that people get to certain things, like people have a LDL level of like 400 and this is like dangerous level stuff. And people will say, Oh, it's fine. Your HDLs, you know, not your HDLs high and your, your triglycerides are low. So don't even worry about it. Like this is misinformation. And, and these, these, these places turn into echo chambers, um, and that that's that's just a that, that bothers me because uh you know I, I i i came at nutrition from a from a very scientific point of view and never really like you know when, when you're in an academic setting like people aren't like most of them <laughs> they aren't like you know low carb diet fanatics or you know everyone's trying to advance the understanding of nutrition and when you get online it's just it just changes completely where it's just uh, diet tribes and, and trying to pull people into those things. And it's just important, you know, my goal is to really try to help build a platform, educating and helping people understand things rather than trying to shove a certain, you know, nutritional philosophy down people's throats. You know, everyone has their own reasons for eating various foods. And um, it, it's just important for people to just be aware and understand and, and have knowledge about the choices that they're making as opposed to, um, you know, trying to get everyone to, to eat a certain way. Um, I think an interesting example of how, you know, as new research comes out, the recommendations change is recently when they've done, did a large scale study about intermittent fasting. Um, and the, and I, I'm going to simplify this and I'm sure you're much more familiar with the research than I am, but Broadly speaking, they did a big study looking at intermittent fasting and changes in body composition. And they compared two groups of people, people who followed an intermittent fasting protocol and people who followed a, you know, non-intermittent fasting protocol. It was not time-restricted eating at the same roughly cal caloric needs per day. And they found no changes in between the two groups in body composition. They both lost the same amount of weight. They both ended up in the same place and basically when intermittent fasting has been sold as this, like, you know, the perfect, the most amazing way to change your body composition, it's not really about the time restricted eating at all. It's about the total energy availability and energy in. Exactly. Uh, the issue there is that a lot of the early studies with intermittent fasting, because the way that you first do studies is you'll, um, run a study and smaller study, lower cost. So a lot of the early studies with intermittent fasting were just doing intermittent fasting compared to um, non-fasting, but they weren't controlling calories and they weren't feeding people. They weren't going through all that process because that's more expensive. So if you tell one group to fast and one group to not fast and you compare the two, the fasting group 
tends to do better because you're placing a dietary restriction upon them that limits their caloric intake in various parts of the day, which is going to limit their caloric or reduce their caloric intake overall. So that's where a lot of that initial, you know, excitement for intermittent fasting came from is when you see these studies, it's like, oh, fasting is better than non-fasting because these fasting individuals lost more weight. The reality is it was just a restriction caused them to eat less. And now, now that there's more controlled studies, and this is the thing with science is, you know, it, it develops, you know, so, so the problem is that when those first studies come out, people say, oh, fasting is better. Scientists would, weren't going in that, like I was reading about fasting at that point, And I did, a, I did plenty of fasting at that point too, but it was, or like, you know, 10 years ago when these studies first started being published and before these comparison studies were published. But as the science evolves, you know, these comparison studies consistently show that there's no difference. And it really just comes down to calorie intake. And there's some more recent evidence that, 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 that may um, suggest that individuals who fast earlier uh, or like earlier in the day, so they eat all their meals earlier and cut off their eating time at like 4 p.m. ish, like some studies do three, some studies do four, some studies do five. Those show slightly greater fat loss than the other group, but it's marginal. Like it's, you know, maybe a pound over a month or two um, to where it wouldn't be something that would be noticeable and wouldn't be something that like, for example, because I work with a lot of parents, you know, I wouldn't recommend a parent do that. And then like, just sit at dinner with their kids and family. You know what I mean? It's like some of these things we have to look at from a scientific perspective, but then we also have to look at it from a practical perspective. And some of these studies have come out that have shown this mild benefit to getting your food earlier and cutting off, you know, your eating window earlier in the late afternoon slash evening. But I haven't even really talked about that research and I don't really recommend it that much because I don't want people to go out of their way for like, you know, what would end up being some minor difference over a long period of time. And it, it requires such a change in your lifestyle. And this is the thing that um, sometimes gets lost in communication online is, you know, we'll talk about, oh, this study showed this. And then so someone wants to do it, but really taking it into context of like, okay, the study showed this benefit, but this benefit was really small. And is it really worth it? Like instead of, you know, just being really sensational about it, um, really talking about the other side of it, like, is it really worth cutting off your eating window at 4 p.m. every day? You know, that may be worth it for someone who, uh, you know, is really trying to optimize every part of their lifestyle and they, they're probably single, don't have a family, things like that. Yeah, maybe it's worth it for that person. But for the majority of us, um, it, you know, stopping to eat, stopping, you know, having dinner at 4 p.m. It's just not practical. And and we have to really take that into account and, and really take everything through that lens. Is this practical? Does it make sense? Because there's, we could pile up a list of different things that have potential benefit from a health standpoint, you know, there's, there's so such a long list of, of things that might have a little bit of a benefit, um, you know, vinegar in, in meals and eating, you know, certain uh, eating protein before, uh, other meals might, you know, change glucose, uh, you know, glucose levels and things like that, where 
if we if we focus on so many other so many things it, it just becomes overwhelming and, and really nutrition your exercise it shouldn't be so overwhelming um, this shouldn't be your whole life unless this is your job like me um, and then and then maybe it's acceptable but you know I meet a lot of people who they're spending so much of their time you know trying to learn about every little you know detail about nutrition and you know it's it's futile at the end of the day because um, all these extra little changes are, are not really making that much of a difference if you're focusing on the big picture um, and really getting these you know foundational principles in place uh, eating enough protein fiber eating the right amount of calories eating plenty of plants a variety of plants things like that um, you know these other details aren't something that you really we really need to stress about too much I've had a lot of nutrition professionals on the show PhDs and registered dietitians and the general message I get from them is that most athletes, right? Even those recreational, you know, among us, we exercise on purpose. We have performance goals. We're out there, you know, we're runners, we're triathletes, we're swimmers, whatever, whatever. Um, most people like us just aren't even eating enough or eating enough of the right macronutrients at the right time. So to then try to restrict my eating window or add vinegar to a certain meal when I'm not even meeting my basic needs from a, from an energy standpoint, that's like you're trying to build the top of the pyramid before you build the bottom of the pyramid. Like it just, it does not going to work. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. And that's, and that's what, you know, that's what just tends to happen because those things, those things are what, what it gets, it's exciting hearing about vinegar before a meal and that that can have a massive impact on your health is more exciting than like, you need to just eat more protein in your meals and have more have actual meals and not drink coffee for a meal. You know, these type of important things that a lot of people aren't doing. Um, you know, th those aren't as exciting, you know, telling people to eat three meals a day that that's been happening for a hundred years. It's not nearly as exciting as, you know, some of these other things. And it's also not making anybody money, right? That's always, where's, who's getting paid? Mm -hmm. Who is, if are, are they presenting a problem and trying to sell you a solution at the same time? Yeah, the glucose thing, uh, yeah, that one's been really big where people are wearing glucose monitors and things like that. That's uh, that's a big, I mean, it, it's really interesting data, but at the end of the day, like um, hyper-controlling glucose, like it, it's, it's just going to, it's going to be overwhelming because then, um, then we have to look at triglycerides too because triglycerides are important. Like glucose is, is one, one risk factor among many. And people get really, really focused on this one risk factor and forget about everything else. And all these other risk factors are important. And if you're just trying to control glucose, um, oftentimes you're probably like, for example, if you're eating less carbs and eating more fat, your glucose level will go down, but then your triglyceride level will go up and that can have negative impact on health as well. I mean, it's just uh, the way that these things are presented just tends to cause people to focus on the wrong things and if you're just like you don't have to hyper control your glucose levels if you're exercising on a regular basis and you're eating plenty of fiber that's gonna that's gonna cover most of it i often tell people that just because you can track it doesn't mean that it means anything that's like a really we can track especially now like the technology there are so many things you can track you can wear so many wearables that track different things. Like just the, the amount of data that you have access to about your own body is unbelievable. 
But just because you can measure it doesn't mean that it, you need to do anything with that data. That's a really good point. Same thing, microbiome tests. That's a really big one to use. There's a lot of people are selling these microbiome tests and it's interesting data, but we, we really don't know how to make sense of this at this point because the science on microbiome and in, in the gut and all these bacteria and how they impact our health is is barely, barely just starting to develop and we don't we don't understand it that well. There's gonna it's gonna take ten or fifteen years of constant research on the microbiome to have a better understanding of how to what to do with that data of like how do we change the microbiome in a way that benefits people's health. We we don't know how to do that at all right now. I mean there is evidence that you need a healthy microbiome yeah. for optimal health. But that sounds like nobody quite, everybody's might look a little bit different. Nobody quite knows yeah, what that actually is. Yeah, and we don't know means. how to change or, it. Yeah, we don't know how, like if, if I test your microbiome and I say, oh, it's unhealthy, how do I make it healthy? Like a probiotic maybe might work, but that may not work with what your composition is because everyone's is different. So you're talking with a probiotic, you're talking about putting in like, 5 billion CFUs into a gut that has 40 trillion microbes. So it's a very small drop in a big pond of different microbes and they all have different functions and they're doing different things. That probiotic may not have any impact. It may interact with those microbes in a positive way. It may interact with them in a negative way. Like it's just, it's it's a complete guessing game right now in terms of um, how to modify the microbiome. Sometimes probiotics help people but it's just completely hit or miss, like almost, it's, it's a guessing game uh, when it comes to the microbiome. And some people um, present it differently. Like they say, you know, this this supplement is going to heal your microbiome. And that's just not possible. Um, we're definitely like, we're just not there scientifically at all. Um, microbiome is really interesting. And, and I think that's like the next frontier of really making a massive impact specifically on like autoimmune diseases and digestive issues like once we know how to predictably change it there's a lot of people who are dealing with you know chronic health issues that i think will be able to significantly benefit from that um but we're just unfortunately not there yet and there does appear to be a relationship between your microbiome and mental health markers of mental health brain health neurotransmitters that stuff's so cool yeah i mean the microbiome i mean it 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 impacts everything so like i mean it's just like it's just like anything else it's like your metabolism affects every other part of your body same thing with the microbiome it's just another kind of organ system it's just an organ system that we didn't even we didn't really even know existed you know 50 years ago and and we didn't know how to measure it like the dna based stool tests that are that are now very popular those barely got into like the scientific research community in like 2000 early 2000s so we're talking about like we couldn't measure any of these microbes really or most of them until early 2000s and then we first started doing a little bit of research on them from there and now they're you know commercially available but it's just uh, although 15 years sounds like a long time or 20 years sounds like a long time from a scientific standpoint like that because a lot of these studies take years to to do um that's not a lot of time for the knowledge base in this specific area to develop and so that's where you know even like gastroenterologists sometimes don't really have 
um, can't don't provide patients with good guidance with regard to like microbiome and, and changes that can be made to improve it because it's just still such a such a question mark overall. And some of the best studies in different areas can take decades as they check in with the same population at different points, you know, throughout time. Those are very expensive studies to put on. Like you mentioned earlier, this is not like the money has to come from somewhere. And I know every Especially researcher if you're doing is school always... tests. Like when, right? you're <laughs> when you're collecting poop, it gets way more expensive. Like if you're doing, you know, thousands of people and tracking them over time and collecting poop, uh, because of the transportation costs, the storage costs, the analysis costs, like that increases the cost of the study dramatically. So that's where this this stuff just, you know, sometimes people think it's like a conspiracy that, that you know, pharma doesn't know how to change the microbiome or like they're not telling us the solution or whatever. Um, but it's just this stuff moves slow. This stuff takes a lot of money. It takes a lot of funding. And, and there's only so many scientists that can do this research and and those people are often, you know, they're they're working themselves uh, to the bone, oftentimes uh, doing different types of research studies and, and trying to advance the knowledge in different areas. That's always a weird um, angle to me. Uh, I think it, that, you know, big pharma has a solution. They're just not telling us because it doesn't provide, you know, it doesn't make them money. But then the person who is trying to sell you a solution is making money. Yeah, the supplements you know, like, and stuff. It doesn't yeah. make any sense. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. And the the it, it frustrates me because people say this all the time about nutrition research is that it's funded by food companies and that type of thing. Like being having worked in that field for five years, like nobody was funded by food companies. Like every project that I worked on was funded by the National Institutes of Health, the American Heart Association, sometimes internal grants. Like food companies didn't play a role in anything. And even when we were getting funded by National Institutes of Health, American Heart Association, these type of uh, different organizations, they didn't have a role in what we did. And the scientists were doing it because they cared. Like they, they, it's not just these people who they're making not that much money. They're professors, they're teaching, they're doing research. They're making a modest living and they're working to advance knowledge because they're passionate about a topic in almost every case. And, and I mean, in nutrition, I never met anyone who didn't fit that criteria in who was doing like nutrition research. And I hear this uh, dialogue online oftentimes, and it's, it's used to try to discredit um, science in this topic where people will say, you know, scientists are paid by food companies and this is just so far from the truth. Now, the RD um, Association is the, I forget what it's called, American Academy of Dietetics or something. They changed it. Um, ADA, I think is what it's called. Academy of Dietetic or Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. I think is what it's called now, actually. So that group um, is heavily funded by food companies. And they're the ones that offer the primary certification in nutrition. So sometimes people will use that story to, to kind of discredit the, these, you know, any nutrition, any people who are professionals in this space. But the reality is that's, that's just the way it is. They're the ones that control the credential. They're heavily funded, but they don't, they control the credential. They don't have any impact on the actual universities and the teaching that goes on in the universities. They don't, they don't play a role in that. And, and the people who are working at the universities are, are generally 
passionate, smart, really well-meaning individuals who are who have no money, getting no money from food companies at all. Or Monsanto, because I hear that too. Setting aside some of the, well, just for lack of a better term, call them biohacks, right? These little optimizations or shortcuts. Um, setting aside the ones that may genuinely have some value to some people in certain, some situations, because some of them do, what are some fads or hacks that people have come to you with or asked you about, which you're just like, absolutely not, never in a million years, never, never, never. Oh man. Um, one of them is the coffee enemas. Have you, have you heard of that? Yeah, that's, yes, I have. that's pretty wild. Um, so I've seen that before. I've met multiple people. What's who, the benefit supposed to be? I don't understand. What are, what are detox. we getting? Supposedly liver oh, detox right that makes no sense yeah it it's supposed to upregulate one's not a two-way street people <laughs> yeah it's upregulate glutathione a thousand percent or something like that i've heard so many claims around this um yeah i had a client that used to do it all the time and i would try to convince her not to and um it, it just we we had to stop working together i'm like you gotta listen to me or, or we, we i can't keep working with you with doing you know these type of things because yeah, it's just dangerous like you know these so that that's a pretty extreme one. Uh, dry dry fasting. I've met people who do like not even water fast. So I've met people who are doing week long water fast. That like thinking that it was gonna like heal autoimmune disease, um, which there's not really any good evidence there, you know, at all. Um, and you know, it's just dangerous. Like some of these things are dangerous. Um, the the uh, the detoxes like the the pills and, and powders i've seen some extreme stuff where people are spending like 500 dollars for a week of just a bunch of different powders and it's just completely unnecessary <laughs> like uh but but that's you know that's just some of the stuff that gets uh promoted online but yeah those i think those are some of the like more extreme ones and more dangerous ones I've seen. To be honest, the carnivore diet uh, right now, in my opinion, would be considered. Uh, I think there's some. Oh, I know there's some people who benefit digestive wise because there are people who have some degree of inflammatory bowel disease or some degree of intestinal inflammation who have a hard time with certain plant constituents. So like insoluble fiber, for example, the lectins in some cases, the gluten, um, some of these things can cause problems in certain people with underlying digestive issues. So I don't want to say, because I know people always come at me like, oh, I felt so much better and it healed my whatever. Um, I know that there are very specific cases of people who feel better in the short term when they follow a carnivore diet. But overall, in my opinion, that's probably one of the most dangerous trends I've ever seen. <laughs> like in in my time working in this space because i've i can't tell you how many being in a couple low carb groups i i've seen so many people and and the ratio is high because i'm not in these massive groups so like six or seven thousand people and i see so many posts of people who had gallbladder issues people who developed gi issues people who developed heart issues really really high levels of ldl cholesterol in um, that in my opinion is one of the most harmful ones because so many people are doing it and it's really extreme and, and 
it's something that if you asked me 10 years ago, I would have never possibly believed that this would be something that became a trend um, that became almost normalized. Like someone eating only meat is almost a normal thing nowadays. <laughs> like that, that happened. Almost everyone knows someone who, who has tried or is currently a, doing a carnivore diet and in a vast majority of cases this is only going to cause harm <laughs> and and it's not going to happen over the short term a lot of people the short term feel better because they lose some weight they go into ketosis so they feel good from the ketosis and then they you know sometimes their digestion improves maybe because they're not eating any fiber so the gas and the bloating that they may have had before with high fiber foods maybe improve so they're like oh wow this you know for every reason this is great but over the long term not having those micronutrients from plants not having any fiber having that much saturated fat that's not going to be most likely not going to lead down the right path in terms of like chronic uh chronic disease and longevity Setting aside the sustainability of eating like that for the rest of the many decades, hopefully, of your life, it's challenging when some of these, um, I don't even know what to call them, use carnivore as an example, that they are being promoted by people, very vocal public figures on the internet who are seemingly like thriving for years and years at a time eating like this. And I can think of one very notable person who was very active on Twitter, who is like a hardcore carnivore adherent and talks about the ribeyes and like, he's been eating this way for years and he's like jacked and has low body fat. And, um, and you know, the, every kind of way of eating has their own kind of subset of like hardcore adherence or very vocal about the thing. And I'm even thinking back to, you know, years ago, um, on YouTube, freely, the banana girl, oh, do you remember? Yeah. Yeah, like that was a big for anybody who was not on YouTube. This has got to be like ten years ago. She like only eat bananas, like hard, not even like regular vegan, like only fruit, like you know. Um, it's just, it's it's really it, it is that belief system, right? So you see that person is telling me that if they they eat this way and they're experiencing these things, and if I eat this way, I will experience those things too. Yep, and it, it it doesn't always work that way. And if we and if we if we look around and, and we we use that as a way to make decisions about things, uh, yeah, we're we're just gonna be confused because, like you mentioned, the banana girl. And there's, I mean, there's there when I was so when I was first getting into my PhD, the raw like vegan was kind of popular, and she was she was one of those, and and. So that's what everyone thought then. Oh, these people are so healthy. They're talking about, um, you know, they healed these diseases or whatever. Um, oftentimes, the stories are made up. Sometimes they're true. And sometimes they're because of a unique set of circumstances that happened with that individual. And that's the thing we have to understand is just from a genetic standpoint, from a nutritional need standpoint, from from many different levels, we're all different. And, and there's... As I mentioned, there's, there's some cases where some individuals do better on low levels of plant foods. But in general, all of the data that we have show positive effects of eating more plants, whether that be observational data, whether that be randomized controlled trials when we feed people, 
uh, broccoli or when we feed people nuts and seeds, when we feed people beans, when we feed people uh, fruit, any type of plant food produces generally a negative or a positive effect on overall health and, and on various health markers. And that can't be argued with like And so excluding those over the long term, we don't have data on that right now. So some of these people will say, you know, you feel better and, and they'll just kind of point people away from research because all the research generally points to this pattern of eating is probably not going to be ideal in terms of cancer risk, in terms of heart disease risk. Um, but we don't have that data because no one's ever, no one's ever only eaten meat. <laughs> we don't have information on what happens over the long term. Maybe, maybe these people do this for 40 years and they thrive and, and, and we, we develop this new data understanding how certain people can live off of this type of diet without any negative health outcomes. I don't think that's going to be the case though. <laughs> um, I, I'm, I just being in the groups, I'm, I'm confident that most people will eventually develop health issues. Um, the guy who wrote the book, the carnivore diet, the carnivore code, he's the one that popularized the whole thing. His book was all about only being a carnivore and he's no longer a carnivore um, because he developed health issues. And, and now he promotes um, meat, fruit, rice, and honey. And he still calls himself a carnivore though, because it's, it's popular. Um, it's so He's just silly. moving the goalposts. <laughs> exactly. I mean, and this, this is what comes down to kind of what, what we just talked about is he, if you listen to his story, cause I, I heard him early, early on, on a podcast, he had dige digestive issues or other health issues and he took out all the plants and he felt better. So he didn't understand why he felt better. I could, I could explain that. I could have said, Hey, maybe you can just add these plants in and feel good. The diet that he's following now. Um, but like it, it's, so what he's following now is a low FODMAP diet. Like this is, this is well understood to be, you know, a, a beneficial approach for IBS. Like, and, and this is why taking a more scientific approach is important because rather than avoid everything and, and just hope for the best, like you can actually learn more about, okay, I have IBS. What, what might be important for IBS? We know that a low FODMAP diet can be helpful. That is kind of what this guy's following now in, in, started with you know the the carnivore promotion and led a lot of people down that path who probably also developed health issues as a result so you know the, these these cases always exist um on all sides of the spectrum again it's the same thing with like uh people who say oh i have a grandma who's 94 and smokes every day and drinks a bottle of jack you know those those we're all different. Those, those cases do exist. Some of us can thrive. We're just lucky and end up thriving off of just whatever. Um, but we have to use large, larger numbers. And that's why science is important. Um, we have to use more data than just individual stories to gather a picture about what's really going on. The plural of anecdote is not data. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and I will also say, I promise you that um, the, the whoever they are, the big shadowy they is not like not doing the research on stuff like this for any ulterior motive. It's that ethically you can't just make people do things to to prove a point or to find like 
that's there's a there's a whole ethics review that you have to go through like many many layers of proving that you're not going to intentionally hurt people or even like unintentionally hurt people when you're trying to do studies like this yeah no they they would not allow so it would be really hard to get to put people on a carnivore diet uh, and, and do a study on that. Like I, I couldn't imagine trying to get that to through the internal review board at a university. They would, they would push back um, because of like you just mentioned ethics. They would say, "Hey, this is potentially unsafe for some of these people." And yeah, that would be that that study would be hard to do. It it probably more requires uh, the volunteers like what they're doing now, and they're doing a really horrible study. So the carnivore community, they're do they're doing like a online survey and they, they're calling it a study where they're asking people to fill out a survey if they've done the carnivore diet for over two years and they're publishing that ev- like that is evidence of the benefits of a carnivore diet so they're they're trying to pretend like they're doing research on that end of things and that's just what i mean it goes back to what we were talking about in terms of like the belief system of um you know you got to be careful about getting sucked into these diet tribes where it's all about belief system because um They'll, they'll go to whatever means to uphold the their, their whole business and you know livelihood relies upon uh this diet oftentimes like if the carnivore guy his he still calls himself a carnivore because his whole business was built off being a carnivore um so like i mean honey is technically made by bees it's, it's i guess it's an animal product right yeah, like we really want to but the stretch. but the fruit though and the rice like uh yeah, I I thought that was because I don't really you know people send me the stuff every once in a while because I get this stuff in my inbox like oh can you please you know tell us why this is misinformation and um, I just realized over time because I heard him early on talking about the carnivore diet and then and then I heard him talk about eating more stuff and I was like what happened there and I I looked it up and it was like he developed health issues and it's like you without turning around like you should turn around and make a PSA of like hey. I need to retract my book. You know, everything that I'm, I'm putting out is potentially harming people, but the book is still selling, you know, and still telling people to eat only, um, you know, only carnivore. Um, that that's, it's just too many people are being harmed in this space. Um, and, and, you know, sometimes people aren't being harmed, but, uh, you know, oftentimes when people are falling for stuff, doing supplements, doing different diets, it may not outrightly harm you, but it's, you know, harming you secondhand in the the time, energy, money that you're wasting, um, the the false beliefs that you may you know kind of hold on to that may prevent you from actually doing what you need to be doing. So the foundational components, if where do you where do you like to see people? What are the basic practices? You're like forget the hacks. Here's what I recommend. If you're if you're trying to optimize your health, this, these are the steps you need to be taking. So um, first, have an understanding of your energy needs and how to meet them, uh, especially if you have some weight to lose. Now, if you're naturally like just thin and you have no issue with like ever gaining any body fat, or you know you just stay at a good weight, then you don't have to. But if you if you go on the really thin side or you go on the side where you hold on to some excess weight understanding you know how, how, how many calories your body uses on a day-to-day basis and how to how to meet that amount I think is really important you know a lot of times this is turns into some 
you know, situation where people get a negative thought process of like counting calories or, uh, you know, understanding this. But um, in my opinion, it's just it's important. It's like having a gas gauge, you know, taking away the gas gauge on your car for a lot of people. A lot of people are trying to feed themselves. And as you mentioned earlier, I meet a lot of people who are just not eating enough and then and then they're binging like it's just chronically under eating and then binging on other times. So understanding your energy needs and then kind of figuring out how to meet those, like looking at, okay, what does that look like? What does a 2100 calorie day look like? How does that, how do I eat that much in a day? And then also meet other needs, which is, you know, protein. That's really important. So um, a lot of people ask me why I talk about protein so much or why, you know, protein is important. So carbs and fat, they're mainly fuel, you know, fat is used for different, you know, structural components within the body. But for the most part, our carbs and fat are fuel. Protein is our structure. You know, those amino acids are used to rebuild tissue, to repair collagen, to repair all, all different, you know, aspects of our body, our structural tissue, our immune cells, our neurotransmitters. So it's important that we're eating enough protein. We don't have to overdo it and go into like bodybuilder zone where you're eating a pound per, you know, a gram per pound of body weight. But the average person in the United States is eating like, Male is like 90 something grams and female is like high 70s, like about 80 grams. That's too low. <laughs> People are not eating enough protein overall. So, um, you know, focusing on making sure that you're getting enough protein. Um, for most people, I typically recommend just eating three meals per day um, and then maybe getting a snack in between there, but trying to focus on getting three solid meals per day because too many people don't eat until lunch. They you know, eat a meal and lunch and they binge on a bunch of snacks either before dinner or after dinner. And the reality is like they just needed another meal. So really trying to focus on getting three full meals per day so that you're fueled throughout the day, that you have energy throughout the day and you're not, you know, binging in various times when you get access to certain foods. Um, I think that's an important piece. Um, eating enough fiber is another you know foundational piece, in my opinion. Um, this goes along with the next one, which is eating plenty of plant foods. So if you're eating plenty of plant foods, you're eating plenty of fiber. Um, and this kind of ties along with like just eating mostly unprocessed foods, you know? So most people, um, I mentioned earlier, 60% of the diet is considered ultra processed foods. Um, there's nothing like inherently wrong where if you eat a little bit of Doritos or Cheetos or whatever the case may be, like, it's just going to kill you. Um, but we have to look at the ratio. If you're eating a ratio of foods that come from those categories where they're, uh, you know, it's fat and sugar and, and refined flour and there's added, you know, uh, added preservatives and, and, and flavors and things like that, that needs to make up a smaller percentage of your diet, you know, 10, 20 percent. Um, or, or, you know, depending on, you know, your own specific needs, maybe a little bit more if you're running a lot and you need those extra calories. Um, I was going to say a little like, I knew with our endurance athletes, yeah. we're not out there fueling our long runs with like lentils and mangoes, yeah, no, right? No. We're in eating the, goo, the, we're eating mixes. Yeah. In those <laughs> cases, the, those, those processed foods serve a purpose in, in their, they're being utilized for more, more important reasons, but from an overall like health standpoint, um, you know, the vast majority of people are just not eating enough nuts and seeds, fruits and vegetables, you know, legumes, lentils, uh, things like that. So uh, just making sure that we're having enough process or unprocessed foods, making sure that we're eating plenty of plants, plenty of fiber and trying to get a variety there. So, you know, there's there's 
different potential health benefits from different, um, different, it, it mostly coincides with color, but different types of plant foods. So for example, like blueberries and cherries, they all have, and grapes, they all have what are called polyphenols. And, and so these specific types of micronutrients might have more like heart health benefits. And then we have like the red from, from tomatoes, the lycopene in tomatoes seems to be beneficial for like cancer risk. So eating a variety of different plant foods, you know, some green, some red, some blue, some white, um, you know, just having a variety of that seems to be beneficial from a health standpoint in terms of disease risk. And then from a microbiome standpoint, in terms of giving our gut access to a variety of different fiber sources, because every type of food has its own unique fiber source or fiber uh, makeup. So a lot of people think fiber is soluble, unsoluble. Well, fiber is really the fiber that broccoli has and the fiber that beans have, and they all have different structures and they all have, they all feed our microbiome and, and have different microbes that can use that fiber and access that fiber. And so the more types of fiber that we eat, the more diversity that it promotes in our microbiome, which seems to be a good thing. Um, so that I, I recommend those are like kind of the main <laughs> overarching things, fiber, plant, variety, making sure that you're eating the right amount of calories and then, you know, the right amount of protein. And if you're focusing on those things overall, like as overarching principles, you know, I think that's, that's mostly what I focus on. Like, I don't, you know, I've, I've been, I've been doing this my whole life, essentially, like I'm 35 now. It's been 17 years of started eating healthier, you know, when I was 18 years old, started exercising at that point. Um, you know, I did a lot of fads in my early twenties, but by 26, 27, just been eating a balanced diet, not focusing on too much, trying to eliminate too much. And I, I you know, anecdote aside, I feel great and, and have, you know, just, you know, it, it's, it's easier than what I was doing in my early 20s. Because in my early 20s, I was doing all the fad stuff because I didn't, you know, I got online and started looking, started reading stuff and I was like, oh, let me go vegan. Let me do this, let me try this. And, you know, it's just, if you're focusing on these major, large, you know, things that matter, you have an understanding of your energy needs, you're eating plenty of you know, micronutrients from various uh, different types of plant sources, you're including plenty of protein, plenty of fiber, like those are the things that are going to make the biggest difference for most people. For individuals, there may be small things that need to be adjusted from there, but those overarching principles for most people are going to have the, the largest long-term health impact. I'll say if you can stay hydrated and get enough sleep as well, you're like 99% of the so, way there. <laughs> I was going to say hydration, but I was thinking about just nutrition. And then, yeah, sleep would definitely be, well, sleep and exercise. Yeah, we got to talk about all types of exercise, running and. and My uh, listeners have, typically have no problem getting enough <laughs> yeah, exercise yeah. for the most part. <laughs> for sure. But yeah, the sleep, the hydration, definitely um, important. But yeah, with the from the nutritional standpoint, that's that's typically what I have anyone that I work with. We're just really focusing on how to, how to do that in a way that is um, just sustainable for them. And that's, the, and the beautiful thing is that looks different for everyone. You know, that that's going to look completely different for one person than the other, but those print, those underlying principles are, are still the same and they still apply in, in, in almost every case. 
And I know that the nutrition piece for a lot of people we talked about in the show a lot, that is that is something that feels like the big mystery. Because even though they may understand, well, I, you know, I heard it from Dr. Chavez and I heard it from this dietitian, like everybody's telling me the same things, but I'm having trouble applying it to my own life. That's why, that's how working with somebody can be really beneficial, right? Whether it's a run coach or a qualified nutrition professional or whoever it is that's going to help you figure out how it works for you. Um, that's okay, right? That's that's the next step. Hopefully you get to do it once and you never have to do it again because you'll learn what you need for your body. So I am, I mean, and, and I know some people probably think, oh yeah, this person, because he works with people, that's why he's saying this, but I, I'm not saying this from this standpoint at all, but this is probably the the, mo- the best investment that most people can make who are thinking about nutrition, who are you know going out, buying supplements, things like that, like if you invest in working with a good coach for a short period of time, they should educate you to the point where you feel confident with your own nutrition from there forward and you have a plan that you can stick to, that you can maintain, and that you save money on and time and energy on all of this other stuff. Yeah, I mean, I, I see it all the time in clients that I work with and people who work with other individuals as well it's a fast track to really, cause otherwise you're in most cases it's going to be months, if not years of, do I do this? Do I do that? You do this for, you know, a short period of time, but then you question it. That's the biggest thing I think for a lot of people is you question yourself a lot because you don't have the confidence in like knowing that this is going to produce an outcome. Whereas if you work with a coach who's experienced, who knows what they're talking about and, and, you know, can has experience with your specific, you know, what you're, what you're going through, they can provide you a lot of certainty and saying, okay, just, you just have to stick with it. You have to be patient. Um, because that's, that's the challenge for most of us is we start it. And then when we don't see the results after a couple of weeks, you know, we, we want to see what the next thing is and what's going to get us those results in that short period of time. But yeah, I completely agree. I think most people, I mean, I, I do this occasionally, this poll on my Instagram where I'll ask like, how much people have spent on supplements or something along those lines to, and then how much they've spent on like working with a dietitian or a nutritionist. And it's always substantially more like people have spent substantially more on, on biohacks as opposed to on getting actual education and, and, you know, developing some foundational skills around this topic. Thank you so much for being here today. Uh, this is a great conversation to have. I knew a lot of the stuff that we talk about in the show is very hyper specific to like adult recreational endurance runners. And I often kind of try to extrapolate out about like general health, general well-being, general, like just try to be a healthy person. And I, I love that this conversation has added to that and hopefully maybe help people understand or think more critically about where the sources of information that they're getting in their lives are they belief system or are they you know research backed let's just put it that way um this is what and this is what you do this is your job like you said and you have your own podcast so tell our listeners how people can learn more about you if they want to learn about any of these topics in depth uh, if they want to work with you one-on-one or in a group setting, tell us more about yourself. Yeah. So um, my podcast is called the Nutrition Science Podcast. Um, and so that is, I just relaunched it. Um, I ran a podcast a while back, but it was 
uh, COVID kind of got in the way of things. So I didn't, I didn't do it for a couple of years, but just relaunched that. Uh, Instagram is the best place to find me in terms of content. Uh, my Instagram is at dr. period Adrian period Chavez. Uh, I'm sure you'll put the link in the show notes. Um, but yeah, you can find me there. Um, and, and that's a good place to, and I have, if you go to the link through Instagram, you can find all different resources, how to work with me, programs, courses, things like that. Uh, but yeah, that's, uh, you know, that's the best place. And that's where I kind of do the most of my educating is through the podcast and through Instagram. And your Instagram is wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you being here today. Yeah, thank you. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Don't forget, you can always find and follow me on Instagram at Running Explained. And if you're looking for a coach or a training plan, check me out. Visit my website, runningexplained.co. That's runningexplained.co. See you next time. This content is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you have regarding a medical condition.